You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Before we get started on this episode, a brief note. Dr. Hart wanted me to let everyone know that he has been suffering from some insomnia brought on by the recent death of a friend. He felt he was not at his sharpest in this interview, and so we should keep this in mind, as well keeping in mind Dr. Hart and his friend. And now, the interview. We welcome back David Bentley Hart to respond to Alan Gomes' review of that All Shall Be Saved, which appeared in Credo Magazine in December 2019. My thanks to podcast listener Andrew Thomas for his role in initiating this interview by submitting a question to me about whether Dr. Hart had ever responded to Gomes' critique. I reached out to Dr. Hart, and he agreed to respond. So welcome again, David Bentley Hart, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Well, Dr. Hart, before we get to Gomes' critique of That All Shall Be Saved, I believe a bit of background on Gomes is appropriate. Alan W. Gomes is professor of systematic and historical theology at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University in La Mirada, California. He is the author of 40 Questions About Heaven and Hell, published in 2018. He also, in 2014, edited an updated edition of the well-known Reformed theologian W.G.T. Shedd's Dogmatic Theology. Gomes, in his 40 Questions About Heaven and Hell, makes it clear that he takes a Reformed, or what I think of as a Calvinistic, theological position on the doctrine of election, although he is in agreement with W.G.T. Shedd's understanding that, on the side of reprobation, the efficient cause of perdition is the self-determination of the human will. Since Gomes does not make his own background clear in his critique of that all shall be saved, let me share five brief quotes from Gomes' 40 Questions About Heaven and Hell, which will help set the stage for our conversation today. Quote one, if grace means anything, it must include a lack of obligation to extend it. Fairness or justice, on the other hand, has reference only to what is owed, that is, to wages due, Romans 4.4, and not to what is offered graciously and to the undeserving. Quote two, the wicked will suffer the natural consequences of rejecting God and his goodness toward them. They will experience the pain of complete abandonment, remorse unmingled with comfort, and the relentless torments of their own consciences, which will burn forever but never finally consume them. This cup they will drink to the full, experiencing unmitigated pain in body and soul. Quote three, those who reject God thereby choose hell, which is separation from God. What God is guilty of, so to speak, is respecting the free will of creatures that he created in his own image by allowing them to exercise their choice to reject him. God thus acknowledges the worth of human creatures by continuing to uphold their existence and by allowing them to choose their own path. Quote four, once sinners have terminally hardened themselves against all offers to repent, God no longer yearns for their salvation, but has given them up to their own desires because of their persistent unwillingness to acknowledge him. Romans 1.28. These have ceased to be objects of pity, but have made themselves purely objects of wrath. Therefore, the fitting emotion toward such individuals is no longer sorrow for their lack of repentance, but only pure indignation and wrath for their final, total, and irrevocable spurning of grace. This remaining emotion toward such individuals finds its expression in their punishment and their punishment alone. Quote five, 
Once individuals have hardened themselves beyond any possibility of salvation, we should and eventually shall then rejoice in their punishment, for in this God sets matters aright in his moral universe. So, Dr. Hart, before we get to Gohm's critique of your theological position, how do you assess the kind of Calvinistic or Reformed position he is advocating? Deeply evil, uh, deeply depraved, deeply psychotic, uh, and something one can only come to believe through uh, chronic uh, spiritual, moral, and mental abuse and being raised in an evil tradition of thought. Uh, I would I would withhold my rhetoric, but as we'll see, rhetoric is is uh, going to be an issue shortly. I think that those quotes you gave me, especially quotes two, four, and five, are indications of a person whose God is most certainly morally the inferior of Satan, and who wishes us to be as evil as he is. Um, then. You know, uh, asking us to rejoice. What, what's amazing about that, of course, is how utterly backwards the other quotes are. I mean, this is really fatuous reasoning. If grace means anything, it must include a lack of obligation to extend it, fairness or justice. The funny thing is, is that 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 uh, he's arguing that therefore, what what we have to understand about grace, what makes it gracious, is the degree to which it's withheld is the degree to which it's exclusive, where, of course, that's exactly the opposite of Paul's arguments. Uh, of course, grace isn't really a theological principle in Paul. That's a mistake. But when he talks about grace, uh, or when Scripture in general talks about mercy triumphing over judgment, the whole point is that strict justice is what would limit the range of of God's mercy and love. It's, 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 it's in fact... Uh, his grace that extends it beyond its the natural limits as we would conceive them to take in everyone, as in Romans 11, all are bound in disobedience that all, uh, got, you know, in order that all may be shown mercy. Uh, it's amazing that that one could actually read the New Testament repeatedly, I imagine, and uh, come up with this utterly inverted understanding of the very part of of the new testament's reasoning it's it's funny though um uh the oh yes and the one about the, the issue about freedom obviously i answer that that more than plenteously in meditation for that all shall be saved and if that doesn't convince uh mr gomes uh, Dr. Gomes, whatever. Uh, I would also recommend reading Thomas Talbot's uh, book. Um, again, I'm horrible with titles. Perhaps you The recall. Inescapable Love of God. Yeah, The Inescapable Love of God. But yeah, no, I mean, that's all just uh, that, that uh, those five quotes together are, are a tragic, uh, are a tragic confection of genuine moral. Uh, mis malformation and and genuine philosophical confusion uh, allied to an utterly incompetent reading of the scriptures. Uh, I, I mean, it's shocking. But then again, I actually have to thank you. I've been I didn't realize this critique goes back to 2019 when you sent it to me. It was not. It didn't impress me. Let me put it as, as we'll see. It. I mean, it's. 
it's not the work of 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 a trained philosopher or anything clearly the the mistakes are are rather legion but but I'm really more worried about the state of mind of someone raised in this tradition. I was beginning to think I wouldn't come across any real attacks by hard and fast Calvinists, because most of the Reform people that have responded to it have been, been Bartians, and they're already halfway to universalism anyway, uh, whereas this is the real thing, and it, it just shows you what a deeply tragic thing it is that this, this twisted version of Christianity took root early in the 5th century and then metastasized into the 16th century by being allied to this this monstrous view of a god of absolute sovereignty, this despotic, vicious, cruel, evil picture of God. And then this tradition teaches this to children. I mean, that is, I can't think of a more horrific uh, wickedness, to be honest, than to teach this vision of things to children. Well, the, um, you know, this, this, when the, I, I think I appreciate it that Gomes puts forward just the, how, um, harsh the reform tradition really is. I mean, he doesn't try to make it, he doesn't try well, to, you know, on one it. hand, I, I, uh, I, I, I compliment him for his honesty and his candor because even a lot of people in the Reformed tradition now try to uh, give him a, a more emollient, uh, although he's already, in a sense, violating Reformed tradition by taking this free will. They, they all try to introduce the free will defense of hell. Of course, that's the most logically incoherent of all. It's based on a freedom that could not possibly exist and a choice that could not possibly be made but we would you know we would reuse up our entire hour here if i were to right. rehearse that argument i think it's we've gone over it many many times not only i've gone over it not only in the book but online and i would uh, direct people to the uh, public orthodoxy argue, uh, articles the four articles called interim report from a few years ago uh, the very uh, i believe the first of them deals with just this issue. And again, Thomas Talbot's book, I think, is is more than adequate to show that this is just, this is a defense of the doctrine that doesn't work. So if Gomes wants to be true to his tradition, he should be as consistent as Calvin and simply recognize that God, his God is beyond good and evil altogether, in fact, and which means he's evil. Well, the, the, the sort of the, the harshness of Calvinism can make other traditions uh, seem almost nice um, in contrast, but I think you point out well that uh, that all anti-universalist Christian theologies must recognize that since God is the first cause of all that is, then all moral consequence and creation inevitably flow, inevitably flow back to God, which means that any ultimately unsaved remainder in creation correspondingly subtracts from the goodness of God. So you note in that all shall be saved, Predestination, in fact, need not be invoked here at all. Brush the issue entirely aside. Let us suppose instead that rational creatures possess real autonomy of almost godlike scope and that no one goes to hell save by his or own Promethean industry and ingenuity. When we then take a look at God's decision to create, from that angle we find, curiously enough, that absolutely nothing changes. Yeah, and again, when I have to just direct people, although we will get 
I mean, because of course, Gomes misread Meditation One in a way that one or two other critics have, like um, uh, Jean Pantaleon Monazakis and one or two others, uh, failing to note that there's a, a kind of unique modal claim that goes with talking about God as <laughs> omnipotent, omniscient, the creator of all things, ex nihilo, and how one judges that uniquely from the eschatological horizon and you know what i call the the moral modal collapse of the difference between antecedent and consequent wills or primary secondary uh intention and all that uh again i said we can't rehearse it all but um it is true that that with with calvinism you get and and not just calvinism i mean this is the late augustine the the augustine of the retractions and of you know, Jansenism, and to be honest, uh, when you put away the uh, equivocations and specious reasoning of, uh, of Thomas Aquinas, to be honest. Uh, but but the, the, those predestinarian systems, it's obvious, the, the, moral, the moral insanity of the picture, the way that we've made ourselves believe something. But even when you subtract the idea of predestination, the, the sheer stochastic possibility of the eternal suffering of a rational nature is encompassed in God's decision, in God's will to create, and therefore does indeed, as you say, in each instance, subtract from the goodness of God and reduce that goodness to a mere relative goodness, which means a relative evil as well. Well, let's uh, get on then to what I take to be the main critiques Gomes makes in his December 19, 2019 article entitled, Shall All Be Saved? A Review of David Bentley Hart's Case for Universal Salvation. The first problem, uh, according to Gomes, is your style. He writes, unfortunately, the book is highly supercilious and oddly pugilistic, dripping with bile and laden with polemical, evocative language and unadorned insult beginning with the prejudicial moniker infernalists to describe his opponents, heart heaps opprobrium upon them, questioning their moral integrity, mental stability, and intelligence. He characterizes his opponents with such choice descriptions as moral idiocy, collective derangement, chronic intellectual and moral malformation, exhibition of emotional pathologies, and moral imbecility, to name but a few such expressions. Um... Well, since and, and since your tone is, is a common critique, what I did was I took examples from your use of these phrases, and By then the I'll way, be shaved. A few such expressions—that's a dishonest. In fact, that that entire catalog is dishonest. I know you're going to go over it in a second, but but of course that all, all, there are no other expressions uh, in the book that are of comparable ferocity, and those are and the ones that he quotes are not uh, aimed at persons uh, in a in an appropriate way. So, I mean, the, the, he does begin with a, a gross misrepresentation. But, I mean, I'll let you handle, but then I, there are two things I want to say about that. Okay. Um, well, let's start with that moniker, Infernalist, which you used about 30 or so times, and that all, that all shall be saved. Here's, here's one example. Even many otherwise competent philosophers have, under the impulse of faith, convinced themselves and others of the solvency of arguments that viewed dispassionately scarcely rise to the level of pious gibberish. It has always been 
a mirage. So if one can make oneself retract that initial surrender to the abysmally ludicrous even for only a moment, one will discover that all apologetics for the infernalist orthodoxy consist in claims that no truly rational person should take seriously. So that's an example of you're using that term, yeah, but, infernalist. Right, and that's a, and, and sorry, but that's a straightforward uh, evaluation of the arguments that holds no one as such as an individual responsible and, and points the finger at all of us when we use specious reasoning. But there is nothing in that language that is excessive, and there's nothing particularly opprobrious about the term infernalist because quite a few people use it of themselves when they speak of the uh, their view. I mean, this has just become part of the standard vocabulary in this debate. It long antedates my book. All right. Here's a, a couple of quotes that have to do with moral idiocy. Uh, the most effective technique for subduing the moral imagination is to teach it to mistake the contradictory for the paradoxical and thereby to accept incoherence as profundity or moral idiocy as spiritual subtlety. Right. What about that one? Yeah, I, again, there's nothing harsh in that that's not aimed at anyone. I'm talking about the way in which, uh, look, I mean, I'm not, I do not apologize for calling the infernalist doctrine morally idiotic, but that is not, again, if you look at the structure of that sentence, I'm making a claim about the way in which traditions of thought, and we as individuals as well, teach ourselves to see what is really an obvious moral idiocy as uh, morally palatable. We do that. Uh, and again, uh, I'm sorry that there, there's absolutely nothing excessive in my rhetoric there unless the reader is say, seized by a pang of conscience and begins directing the rhetoric at himself and thereby mistakes it as a form of personal abuse. But I'm totally unapologetic, and I, uh, I'm, using, I'm using the language necessary to stress the quality of the doctrine itself. All right, here's another example of the moral idiocy uh, phrase. For one broad, venerable stream of tradition, God, on the basis of this imputation of inherited guilt, consigns the vast majority of the race to perpetual torment, including infants who die unbaptized, though one later intenerating redaction of the tale says that at least the youngest of these children, though forever denied the supernatural bliss of the vision of God, will nonetheless be granted the homely natural beatitude of the infant's limbo, the limbus infantum which mitigates but does not dispel the doctrine's moral idiocy. Right. It is a doctrine that is morally idiotic. I don't understand what the problem here. There is no other way of saying it. I, I find it amazing that someone could propound ideas as foul as the ones that you started this interview with and then expect the response to be apologetic. Um... Uh, restrained, that the language should be, <laughs> what, diplomatic? Well, his language wasn't. He's talking, what, what, what was it he said? That, that, that we will rejoice in the infinite sufferings without let, without hindrance, without mitigation. We will rejoice in that. 
I mean, I, I'm sorry, but the, the, that rhetoric is deeply offensive. The saying that a doctrine is moral idiocy is, again, a perfectly justified and rational evaluation of a moral claim. I also believe that, say, you know, uh, defenses of capital punishment are moral idiocy. Uh, you know, that does, you know, I, I, I see no reason why anyone should be asked to find some less candid, uh, more insincere way of, of stating what is just a straightforward and honest moral evaluation of a moral claim. Uh, if, if, if he finds this insulting again, I'm just going to say that I think there's a certain little Freudian uh, uh, mechanism of, of displacement going on. He's taking it as an uh, assault, as, as an insult, principally because at some level in his own psychology, he's aware that he is guilty of moral idiocy, but has made himself believe that it's not what it is. All right, let's go on to your uh, phrase uh, that he takes exception to, collective derangement. You mm -hmm. use that one time and that all shall be saved. You write, in the end, with sufficient practice, one really can, like the white queen, learn to believe as many, six Im as, many as six impossible things before breakfast. Not that I am accusing anyone of consciously or cynically seeking to manipulate the minds of faithful Christians. The conspiracy, so to speak, is an entirely open one, an unpremeditated corporate labor of communal self-deception requiring us all to do our parts to sustain one another in our collective derangement. I regard right. the entire process as the unintentional effect of a long tradition of error, one in which a series of bad interpretations of Scripture produced various corruptions of theological reasoning, which were themselves then preserved as immemorial revealed truths and, at last, rendered impregnable to all critique by the indurated mental habits of generations, all despite the logical and conceptual incongruities that this required believers to ignore within their beliefs. So I really do take all parties at their words. I see. And uh, can you see anything problematic about that way of phrasing it? Well, I thought it was uh, in a, a gracious way of saying that, that, that yeah. you are not accusing anyone of consciously or cynically seeking to manipulate the minds of faithful Christians. So right. you're not attributing, yeah. you're not attributing um, some, dark um, uh, reason or rationale for people doing this, you're saying that they're just the products of this long tradition. Yeah. I mean, to me, I thought that was quite obvious. I, I Again, I, I think that there's a fundamental either dishonesty in him taking these phrases out of context to try to create the impression that the book is much more vicious than it is, and that it's vicious about individuals rather about than about evil ideas, and also uh, that there. Uh, I mean, that's that's. It's either dishonest or again, it's psychologically inflected by uh, some sense of uneasy conscience on his part that he's he's deflecting by uh, by turning the finger of self-accusation towards me instead and making it seem as if I'm his accuser, uh, he can read this any way he wants. But so far, I've yet to see any problem with any any of this rhetoric. It is simply a straightforward assessment of the situation in which we all together over centuries have made ourselves accept something that we know 
at, at a deep level, I think, is morally incoherent. And uh, I, I, as yet, am entirely uncertain exactly what problem with any of this rhetoric one sees, unless one believes that one's entitled to kid gloves uh, in every possible situation, and that it is incumbent upon uh, one's critics always to pretend to respect ideas, whether they're respectable or not. Uh, the next phrase that he takes exception to is chronic intellectual and moral malformation, and that appears mm. one time, and that all shall be saved. You write, and what could be more absurd than the claim that God's ways so exceed comprehension that we dare not presume even to distinguish benevolence from malevolence in the divine, inasmuch as either can result in the same endless excruciating despair? Here, the docile believer is simply commanded to nod in acquiescence, quietly and submissively, to feel moved at a strange and stirring obscurity, and to accept that if only he or she could sound the depths of this mystery, its essence would somehow be revealed as infinite beauty and love. A rational person, capable of that assent, however, of believing all of this to be a paradox concealing a deeper, wholly coherent truth rather than a gross contradiction, has probably suffered such a chronic intellectual and moral malformation that he or she is no longer able to recognize certain very plain truths, such as the truth that he or she has been taught to approve of divine deeds that, were they reduced to a human scale of action, would immediately be recognizable as expressions of unalloyed spite. Again, yeah, I I, 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 I see it as essentially dishonest of him to have taken those words out of their context, because in context, it's a perfectly rational and totally unmalicious statement. All right, emotional pathology, one quote, referring to the Western tradition's insistence on such things as penal substitutionary atonement theory, original sin, total depravity, inherited guilt, limited election to salvation, you wrote in that all shall be saved. Happy, happily, all of that is degrading nonsense, an absolute midden of misconceptions, fragments of scriptural language wrenched out of context, errors of translation, logical contradictions, and, I suspect, one or two emotional pathologies. It came as a great consolation to me when I was still very young to discover that in the first three or four centuries of the Christian era, none of these notions had yet taken root, either in the East or the West, and that for the most part, the Eastern Christian world had remained innocent of the worst of them up until the present day, and furthermore, that the New Testament read in the light of the proper tradition turned out to contain nothing remotely like them. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just, I think it's obvious that, you know, when you read even Augustine or Tertullian or Pascal or Cornelius Jansen, you're going to find that there are certain emotional pathologies probably involved in their ability to believe these things. That, again, a pathology is not a... To say that is not to say someone is evil. It's not to say somebody is stupid. It's simply to say that, that, that there are reasons why some people uh, are able to suppress their moral intelligence more successfully than other persons are. And that is part of the history of this doctrine, whether you like it or not. It, it is a repellent and degrading doctrine. And we've had to teach ourselves to believe that we believe uh, that, it, that it can be uh, a 
affirmed without without violation of conscience or reason, but it cannot be. And so those of us who have a few emotional problems uh, find find it easier at times to accept morally uh, repugnant ideas uh, because we've been wounded and and the world comes to us as a much darker and painful place than it is for others among us and therefore our moral expectations of reality have been damaged that's all part of the condition of being born in a world bound to death and sin it's something to be pitied but it's not something it's not something to be ignored and it can be named without malice all right you use the phrase moral imbecility twice in that all shall be saved the first one is i recently read an evangelical apologist for the infernalist orthodoxies argue that it is morally correct for the saved to cease from pity for the damned simply because such pity is fruitless just as it is forgivable to avert one's eyes from a frightful accident on the roads from which one cannot rescue the victims and to cease to think about it entirely this it should be needless to say is nothing more than a counsel of moral imbecility Right. And that's exactly what it is. That's what moral imbecility is. It's not caring about the suffering of others. That is, in fact, at one time, it, it, it's rather antiquated now, but it, that was actually the psychological uh, definition of, of that sort of sociopathy. It was called moral imbecility. Now it's called depraved indifference, legally, and sociopathy, psychologically. But that's what it means. It's it's counseling us not to this. This was, in fact, William Lane Craig, I believe, counseling us not to care. That's a, a very odd way to deal with the counsels of conscience if you actually believe in the goodness of God. Okay, here's another quote that involves the moral imbecility. One sees this spitefulness well before Augustine's time in an earlier North African father, Tertullian, promising that one day Christians would not be persecuted and indeed would be able instead to rejoice in the spectacle of the destruction of the wicked. Somehow, though, it is a more chilling thing when one sees it attenuated to the bloodless blandness of Thomas's formulation in a form so demure and tepidly dispassionate as to make crystal clear just how thoroughly an indurated moral imbecility can come to seem like simple common sense, even for a brilliant thinker. Right. And that's true. That's a psychological truth. That's an intellectual truth. That, that we can condition ourselves to mistake moral imbecility for something morally palatable. That's an essential argument of the book. There is nothing harsh in those expressions. They are merely candid. They are merely objectively accurate. Nothing has been to... aimed abusively at anyone. If you notice, not a single one of the quotes you read out there uh, arraigns or accuses any particular individual or group of individuals. Well, would it be fair to say that your strategy in the book is to be openly provocative without the intention of being personally desultory? Desultory? Uh, you, you mean derisory, derisive or uh, uh, derisory? I guess so. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. desultory. <laughs> I'm always desultory, uh, but that's it. Yeah, I'll let you look that up. Um, <laughs> uh, 
Um, no, let me let me actually be a, a bit harsher, since that's what's apparently expected. Notice how the burden uh, for rhetorical restraint falls repeatedly upon the critic of the idea of eternal conscious torment. Whereas, on the other side, uh, as you'll see from Gomes' own words, uh, no such expectation is, 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 is reserved for those who are promulgating what I regard as, as a morally diseased idea. If I honestly believe something is morally evil, what am I supposed to say? That it's problematic? that it's counterintuitive. How long has this doctrine, this form of teaching, this way of seeing things, gotten by on the uh, hesitations, on the reticence of its critics, on on their, their fear of speaking openly about just how hideous this, this form of theology is? I have seen critiques of universalism over the years, many times I thought were quite solvent. They were also quite ineffectual because the rhetorical restraint was so preposterously exaggerated out of fear of offending against honest believers who are merely adhering to an ancient orthodoxy and and after all the testament the testimony of tradition was on their side, who who have withheld their, the, uh, the appropriate language with, with such, uh, d- to be honest, indecent decency, that no one is ever really forced to think seriously about just how foul this teaching is. I mean, you went through basically the Synod of Dort um, uh-huh. uh, base, uh, when you were you were telling me what Gomes himself affirms. From any angle, any angle of, 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 of scrupulative moral probity, only a psychotic religion could teach such things. And again, I want to point out that this is taught to children. It is monstrous. It is evil to teach children such things. It is it, it warps, twists, and sears the conscience. And the only excuse someone like Gomes has is that he himself was subject to that abuse earlier in life. And so he's just passing the evil on from generation to generation. That's why I talked, as I did, about collective derangement, although obviously this went completely over his head. He didn't seem to understand what I was saying is no one person can be singled out as guilty in this regard. I mean, even the late Augustine, who's the father of the worst possible distortion of Paul's theology, the one that, that gets picked up in, and in, you know, having gone through the period of voluntarism and so on and forth, reaches its absolute extreme expressions in the 16th and 17th centuries, both in the Catholic and Protestant worlds, by the way. I'm not even blaming a tradition here. Um, Even he was the victim, as I say, of 
a certain emotional pathologies which are clear, even as much as I love Augustine, you don't have to read deep in the confessions to realize that there is a there is a somewhat neurotic personality there, one that is given to extremes of of um, uh, guilt and a sense of unworthiness uh, to the point where where uh, uh, you know a childhood theft of a pair for him could have all the significance uh, of of the kind of sin that leads to eternal torment. He was not a fully healthy personality. He was a genius, and like many geniuses, he had problems. Uh, but you know, I, I don't know what else to say. It's just clearly the case that that, and to be honest, if I were being really, really candid, which I'm not in sense in the book, because I do, I do avoid aiming this at anyone in particular. I would say to to Mr. Gomes, to Dr. Gomes. He is a moral idiot. Yes, he has made himself or been made into one. He should think about that. He should seek to be healed. He should seek to be liberated from the moral idiocy that's been inscribed in his soul by a cruel, evil, irrational, and diseased tradition. And he should, rather than complaining about the rhetoric of those who have the temerity to call evil evil, he should be down on his knees begging forgiveness of every child who comes into this world, whose innocence he has slandered as being stained with indelible uh, original guilt, and whose goodness as creatures of God, he has denied by suggesting that not only can they be subjected to eternal torment by the by the just dereliction, in the sense of God, but that God will rejoice in it and feel towards them nothing but wrath, and that we too will rejoice in their suffering. What a sickening, what a sickening set of ideas. He he should be apologizing for the rhetoric he uses because it is so unnatural, so cruel, so so wicked. As you can tell, I'm a bit uh, uh, sleep-deprived here. Uh, but, you know, I'm not going to apologize. I, all I've done in the book is state clearly things that should be stated clearly. Well, let's go on to the second problem that Gomes has uh with you. It's your disregard for tradition. According to Gomes, for Hart, the tradition's morally repugnant rejection of apocatastasis is of a piece with its embrace of other degrading nonsense, such as penal substitution, fueled at least in part by one or two emotional pathologies, and the repellent, conscious-corrupting, dreadful, irrational, and morally horrid doctrine of original sin. Hart levels his lance at all branches of the Christian tradition, uh, especially of or, original guilt. He's a bit confused there. He doesn't seem to know that in the Eastern Christian world, uh, the notion of original guilt has always been abominated. I'm not. Hart, I, do, I say nothing there. That's. Not, I mean, that's nothing compared to the rhetoric used by Patriarch Photius or any number of other Eastern Christian theologians over the centuries. Hart levels his lance at all branches of the Christian tradition, especially the Roman Catholic and Protestant West, but even against the East, albeit in sotto voce and with certain duly noted exceptions. To put the matter baldly, the God in whom the majority of Christians throughout history have professed belief appears to be evil, 
at least judging by the dreadful things they habitually say about him. Yes, that's the argument. We must reason. We must reason well. And if we believe that something uh, is true simply because of its uh, authority as a traditional doctrine, uh, even if we think it to be evil, then we commit a contradiction for, for obvious reasons, because we have no reason to believe in the authority of tradition except based on prior rationales. We have made the rational decision to believe that this tradition actually has authority. It, it has no manifest authority otherwise, so if then our reason recognizes its obvious irrationality, then faith in its authority is irrational and frankly is nothing other than epistemic nihilism. It's not It's not faith It's in any meaningful sense. It's in fact, in many ways, uh, rather deplorable. When I was uh, growing up, I grew, did not go to church, but I grew up around Christian fundamentalists who were very uh, adamant that they held no tradition, that they just went by the Bible. But then I often mm -hmm. noticed that the Christian tradition became invoked in the name of a what I thought was a terrifying supreme being who in foreknowledge creates children burdened by inherited guilt, pours out his wrath on his own son, and then eternally consciously torments all who fail in this life to rightly connect to his wrath-bearing son, making that wrath fall on them eternally, all of this supposedly done in pure love. And if you questioned it, not only were you told, well, well that's what the Bible says, but you were also told and that the church over the centuries that their tradition came to affirm all of this, so that if you doubt, if you go against any of this, you're doubting scripture and and tradition. Yeah, of course, it's neither scriptural uh, nor is it universal tradition. Uh, many of the elements of the doc, many of the elements of the version of Christianity you just described, obviously, are not found uh, in every uh, in every uh, denomination, every confession. But even so, yeah, I mean that, that that's the argument and. Uh, it's it, it's simply a way of thinking, uh, who are you going to believe, uh, your rational intellect or my arbitrary claims about the nature of God? And they're not arbitrary now because supposedly they're grounded in uh, what? Uh, uh, it looks to me like if, if it can't be reconciled with any rational or rational moral intuitions, then it would seem to be simply a tradition of arbitrary claims in an ever-expanding echo chamber. That's really not worth taking seriously. If you cannot judge the tradition, if there is, if, if to be honest, if your, uh, your capacity for moral reasoning and rationality is that debile, is that weak, that you can't, you, you, you can't make judgments on something as obvious as this, then you have no business believing anything at all, you, because you simply don't have the rational warrant to believe in scripture, in tradition, or in anything else. All right. The third problem Gomes raises is uh, the way you elevate your own private moral intuition and reason over and above the greater <laughs> importance of scripture and tradition. And he writes, it's Hart's private moral intuitions <sighs> and reason that secure the outcome of his argument. Hart expresses forcefully his moral and emotional loathing for the genuinely odious doctrine of a eternal conscious torment, regarding it as the single best argument for doubting the plausibility of the Christian faith as either coherent or a morally worthy system of devotion. Hart seems to believe that he has the Bible in his corner, 
but the biblical witness is not the final court of appeal for Hart, nor determinative. If Hart were convinced that the Christian faith requires a belief in eternal conscious punishment, he would jettison Christianity altogether as self-evidently morally wretched before bowing the knee. Indeed, that is all true, although it is obviously not basing it on private moral intuitions. I mean, these are these are pretty universal uh, and recognizable uh, moral judgments. They they follow uh, quite rationally from the simple principles of uh, proportional justice, the nature of mercy, and so on and so forth. But they also follow from the teachings of Christ. And from Scripture, uh, you know, I mean, once again, uh, Christ uh, allows an analogy between the love of the Father for his, his, his creatures and one's own experience of, of one's paternal love for one's children. In fact, he commands this as, as the analogy we, we should apply to God. The, the, the nature of, of uh, the good is pretty uh, abundantly laid out in the teachings of Christ of you know charity forgiving if you want if you want to know the moral intuition that I'm actually taking to be supreme in regard to this I think it would be the words of Christ on the cross father forgive them they know not what they do that is a recognition that that even their works of evil are not based on on the knowing um application of their rational freedom. And if they did know, uh, they could not do what they're doing. But whatever the case, Father, forgive them. Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't know what on earth Gomes thinks reasoning is, but if you're, you you can't, and setting quite aside the, the scriptural teaching, of course, everyone reasons based on their moral intu- intuitions. You have to. That's what reason is. Reason is the way in which you engage you know, your prudential, your evaluative, your rational faculties in dealing with the transcendental goods, the good, the true, the beautiful, uh, the morally good, the good in every other sense, uh, and and to do otherwise is is simply to forfeit uh, any claim to being a rational or moral being. I mean, this is just absurd. Of course, I, I, I you have to reason from moral intuitions. And again, as I say, Christ uh, commands you to do so. Um, uh, I, I really, you know, I, I find arguments of that sort. But of course, that's. That's so typical of the Reformed tradition, isn't it? I mean, you take uh, Paul, when, when he uses a, a rhetorical device in Romans 9, and says, who are you, O man? And he talks about the, the, the vessels of wrath and all that. He's posing a pretty drastically horrible set of possibilities before the eyes of his readers, isn't it? But then he goes on to negate them all. That's the whole point of the argument made from in Romans 9 through 11, is that it, God could have created vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy, and who, mercy, and who would you be? You're just a, a creature. Ah, yeah. But then he realizes that God would be unjust, would be untrue to his covenant, would be something less than he says he is in making his covenant with Israel. 
Therefore, he reasons himself all the way to the opposite conclusion that God's intention is to show mercy on all. There are no separate vessels of wrath, vessels of mercy. All have been bound in disobedience so that mercy can be shown to all. I, I, I And, you know, Paul himself is using moral intuitions there. He realizes that he could simply throw his hands in the air and say, ah, well, the sovereignty of God being such as it is, how dare I question this? And then he realizes that then he would be affirming that God is a liar or is evil or is malicious or that is imperfect or is something less than the God of Christ. And using his moral intuitions, he then takes the figures of of uh, of of uh, Jacob and Esau and uses them as a kind of template into which to work out the relation between Jews and Gentiles until he arrives finally at this great, radiant, glorious, universalist affirmation of chapter 11. So, uh, yeah, um, I, I have no idea what, what Gomes thinks we're supposed to be doing with the mind that we were given and being created in the image of God, uh, but uh, I would say that if you, if you have to suppress your moral intuitions to the level that you would actually accept the kind of doctrines he believes are incumbent on the Christian, then again, you're just engaged in epistemic nihilism. Faith is just brute assent without rationale, and therefore without sincere engagement of the heart, will, and mind. Well, it seems to me that Gomes has elevated scripture and tradition to a kind kind of static monoliths, which somehow well, obviously— there is, there is that. I mean, the fact that obviously—I mean, from my—I'm Eastern Orthodox. I mean, from my position, he's a, as a Calvinist, he's, he's barely even nominally Christian. So many of the doctrines he teaches— are abhorrent to, to Eastern tradition that he would be regarded as the worst of heretics. You know, if you're going to start throwing tradition and scripture around, well, there is a pretty good and well-established 2,000-year-old Eastern tradition of reading scripture with extraordinary care and scrupulous attention to its contents that has arrived at a set of doctrines on many many issues like inherited guilt and predestination and so forth and so on, absolutely antithetic to those that Gomes embraces. And, you know, uh, I hardly have to tell you, the most polemical of Eastern Orthodox authors when talking about these doctrines waxes far, far more contemptuous than I do. Well, what what strikes me is how Gomes is telling us to ignore our deepest intuition about love and morality, ironically, in the name of the Bible and tradition. And it's just mm -hmm. amazing to me how often institutionalized forms of things ultimately often come to embody the exact opposite of their original moment. And I think they, uh, that's simply a, a truth about human institutions in general. They're structures of power, and they're not, you know, they just are. I mean, uh, I think that one thing I've always admired about um, Catholic claims about the church is that the church has to be thought of as simil casta et meritrix, you know, that, yeah, it's the pure bride of Christ, but also the most the most impure in, in many other ways, you know, has frankly acknowledged the institutional evils again and again, not always 
when they should have been acknowledged, and not always adequately, but nonetheless, there's an understanding there that the institution uh, is, is to be distinguished from the truth of the gospel to which it points. Um, I, I, I mean, look, I, I, this is an issue that comes up in the book also in the first meditation, this, this uh, issue of the contagion of equivocity, which I suspect also Gomes didn't understand. He's, he's requiring of Christians the embrace of a, a cognitive dissonance so profound that it cannot help but render all doctrinal language semantically vacuous. It doesn't mean anything. If, if what he's saying about God can, can be the definition of God's goodness, love, and mercy— then those words simply have no meaning. We have no analogical uh, grammar by which to make any sense of them. We, we're believing in nothing. We're, again, it's just nihilism being called faith. A fourth problem that Gomes raises is that you have not fully resolved the problem of evil because even if God does save all, God is still the ultimate source of temporary evil and suffering. And so he writes... Uh, since God is the source of the ignorance which leads to sin, and since this ignorance leads to misidentifying the good, and because misidentifying the good eventuates in all of the untold perils, misery, and sufferings of the race from time immemorial, how is God good in light of all the evils that eventuate from humankind's wretched plight? It scarcely removes the difficulty to say that God does not allow this ignorance to reign permanently, but eventually removes it, heart himself rejects an answer that would, quote, make the transient torments of history justifiable in light of God's everlasting kingdom, unquote. For however long the ignorance endures, God is responsible for allowing it and for all of the suffering that eventuates from it. Recall that God could remove this ignorance at any time at his option through a clear revelation of himself. Why would he not have done so from the start? Against the Augustinian and Calvinistic doctrine of reprobation, Hart declares that God would himself be morally reprobate if he failed to save individuals when it was well within his power to do so. Very well then, on this hypothesis, Hart's God might be less abominable than Calvin's, since Hart's God has seen fit to place an expiration date on his wanton cruelty, but this still would not yield for Hart a God who is good, given his own working assumptions. You know, this is the danger of a man without philosophical training uh, entering into a philosophical debate he doesn't understand. Uh, the book has nothing to do with the problem of evil, and the problem of evil, when it is addressed in that book and where I've addressed it elsewhere, uh, is, is not relevant here. Now, you can bring up evil if you want as, as an arraignment of God, um, but it's perfect. it makes perfectly so, uh, sound sense to say that a God who creates out of nothingness for, uh, free creatures to be joined to himself in spiritual liberty makes room for the possibility of transient evils to bring about an ultimate good. That is very different from saying that God's eternal counsels uh, at the eschatological horizon eventuate in a state of reality in which there are both uh, unresolved evils and torments for those evils. These are just modally different claims. I've gone through this so often 
it's it, it, and I do not understand how anyone can read the first meditation and think that the problem of evil is relevant to the argument I'm making there. Uh, so I, I, I should I should note that that actually give me give me some time here because uh, um. The, 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 the metaphysics of creatio ex nihilo does raise the question not only of eternal dereliction, but of every evil. That's true. But the two questions differ radically in modality, and I deal with the issue just on pages 59 to 60 of the book, and I've dealt with the issue of the non-necessity of evil in other texts, um, like uh, The Doors of the Sea. And, uh, I mean, it's... It, it's a good mariological rule that to try to understand the whole in terms of its parts and to try to understand the parts in light of the whole are two very different operations of reason. Uh, many, or if you put it in terms of set theory, many things can be predicated of a set that can't be ascribed to the individual contents of a set. So if one's going to judge the relative goodness or badness of a discrete evil in relation to final purposes, we either can or can't see it's, that's one thing. It's another thing to judge a supposed total narrative that pretends to describe the whole rationality of all its discrete events. It may very well be that for God to create genuinely free creatures, they have to, from the very first, from the moment of their emergence from nothingness, be free uh, in every sense. And that may come with the peril of many transient evils along the way. But that's, you know, once you make the former judgment regarding discrete evils, that's never anything more than a conjectural and inductive judgment. The, the, the other judgment concerning the total narrative that gives you the whole rationality, that becomes a judgment that's a matter of logic. There may logically be such a thing as an evil that's redeemed in the greater good towards which, which it leads. Why wouldn't there be? There is no such thing as an unredeemed evil that does not reduce the good towards which it might lead to a mere relative value. And that's the point. The modal moral collapse that I talk about is uniquely an eschatological collapse it cannot be understood except in the light of the end of all things. In the former case, again, dealing with individual evils, it's possible that evil may be non-necessary in an ultimate sense, but necessarily be possible in a provisional sense. But in the latter case, when we're talking about the total narrative, evil figures for this majority tradition as a necessary aspect of the eternal identity of whatever reality it helps to bring about. Okay, so, you know, the the truth is, I'm not going to go through my long reflections on Ivan Karamazov's argument and Brothers Karamazov and why I think that his conversation with the devil is more important than, say, the the teachings of Father Zosima for understanding. But all I'm going to say is this. Um, the, the question of evil that's raised there and by someone like Gomes is not logically entailed in the question of ultimate unredeemed suffering. These are two different issues. Ivan's argument ends with a personal act of evaluation. I refuse the ticket. It's not worth the cost. That may or may not be true. I don't know, but that's a different issue. 
My argument about the modal relationship between creatio ex nihilo and eschatology does not end with a personal act of evaluation. It ends with a QED. And if he has not understood the argument, then I encourage him to go over it very carefully several times until he finally gets the point, because this argument is not one he's going to get around with arguments as bad, his counter arguments as bad as the ones he's making. Well, um, so God might very well have to allow enormous amounts of evil in order to ultimately have the context in which souls might be truly and perfectly formed. But it also seems to me that God, in the crucifixion of Christ, descends into and takes upon God's own self that very evil, which God allows in order to ultimately defeat that evil and bring healing to all. Well, of course, that's basic Christian teaching. But I also want to point out that the question he's asking isn't even a logical one, because what he's saying is, why didn't God simply create souls in a state of beatitude? But then you see, that's the creation, not in any given, in any given case, not of a free spiritual being that has to grow into its union with God. That's not... A, a, a free movement from nothingness into the infinity of God. That's just a dramatist persona. That's just somebody who's been created in a certain state of psychological, spiritual, moral development. That is not a free being. That would indeed thwart the purpose of creation, presumably. Uh, you know, the, the sort of question he's asking is based on a rather uh, how can I say it, childish notion of what beatitude is, what it is to be joined to God. Truly to be joined to God certainly is not simply to be created in, a, in, a, in an artificial state uh, as, as a, uh, you know, as uh, an automaton. It is indeed to be created. It is indeed to be created from nothingness. It is indeed to move from that, that essential nothingness into the infinity of God. It is to become. I can see in those terms, I mean, I may not at the end of the day, I mean, I, I, I can also see taking Yvonne's, uh, taking Yvonne's perspective and saying, I just can't accept this. You know, and that's why I say his conversation with the devil in, in the Brothers Karamazov is interesting because the devil talks also, you know, in this way about seeing the final horizon, making his four million mile journey, uh, laying down his resistance to God and, and, and glimpsing the truth of things and all at once saying it was worth it. The way that uh, I think one should think about this, though, is what's going on in Paul's theology in 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks about all creatures, uh, you know, praising. It's, you know, it's ex is you know, praising God uh, altogether, that being the final state of things, making that condition. But I think what's going on there is precisely that that is the moment of creation. That's the accomplished reality when, when not just, you know, God judging us, but us judging God and finding that he is, in fact, the infinite good, and therefore finding it impossible not to praise, freely to praise that goodness. Um, that, 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 that final, but that final confession is something that has to be one through two. 
otherwise, it's it's simply the empty noise of of you know <laughs> mechanical birds in you know you know uh, Yeats is sailing to Byzantium you know <laughs> uh, beaten gold and gold enameling and all that. I mean, it's just it would just be uh, mechanical music. Uh, you know, it, it's it's just a strange way of seeing things to imagine. Anyway, we're getting off point here. And the simple point, uh, and again, if I weren't sleep deprived, I would have made it and then moved on, is that the problem of evil, the notion that, that evil may, the possibility of evil may or may not conduce to a greater good is not the same thing as the problem of this modal moral collapse, which has to do with the final state of things. You know, and if one can't see the qualitative difference between those two things, then one is just being willfully obtuse. All right. Gohm's fifth critique is that by making God morally responsible for our sin, it eliminates our own responsibility for it. And he writes... Heart does not wish to eliminate moral responsibility nor guilt for the sins that moral creatures commit. However, on heart's reckoning, a creature cannot sin to the degree that he or she knows God as the good in itself, but can sin only to the degree that the creature is ignorant, misidentifying a false good for the true good. Remember that elsewhere he states that even the very act of apostasy is driven by a desire for God, albeit misplaced. Now, this very ignorance is what Hart believes mitigates guilt but does not eliminate entirely. It is only the degree to which the person abets the error willingly that forms the morally culpable residue of the sinful action. But on further reflection, it would seem that such ignorance would not merely mitigate guilt but must eliminate altogether not only actual guilt but even the possibility of any guilt. How are we to account for that guilt-worthy fractional part of the sin that remains, what we might call the genuinely sinful part of the sin. Surely that culpable fractional part, if it is truly sin, must itself have ignorance as its root. So that fractional culpable part turns out not to be quite so culpable after all. This fractional portion of the guilt is in turn mitigated by the degree to which ignorance underlies and informs that part and so forth until culpability vanishes altogether. Uh, again, I'm going to repeat the caution against persons without much in the way of a philosophical training entering into debates of this sort a little bit too audaciously. Um, in one sense, he's right. I mean, I don't believe in absolute culpability. I, I, I most certainly don't. I believe that uh, that Christ was right, both in saying, forgive them, they know not what they do, but also saying that, you know, if you know the truth, it's the truth that will set you free. That until, and which means until you know the truth of things, you're not really free. But there's there's also just, you know, a, an extraordinary um, failure here to, to grasp the difference between qualified and absolute claims at a lower level, you know, there is no such thing as absolute culpability. I fully grant that I hold that to be true. But at a lower level of culpability, one can have an epistemological grasp that something is evil and still do it. I mean, you know, true, that, that's not absolute in the sense that, it w that, that the desire to do evil would vanish if one were presented with a truly nosiological grasp of the good. That is, an immediate absolute 
direct intuition of the essence of God and the goodness of God. Uh, and that is, of course, what the free will defense of hell requires if it's to be coherent, the notion that you could truly know God, that you could truly have uh, not only an intellectual but a moral and spiritual intuition, intuition of God directly and still reject it, which is, in fact, you know, clearly uh, an incoherent notion. It makes a nonsense of the very idea of rational freedom for reasons that are laid out in the book and for reasons that Thomas Talbot is very good at. But that doesn't mean that that you can't, it, it, in a qualified and conditional way, have been made aware that what you're doing is technically morally wrong and know that the what you take to be the greater good is a non-moral good. And to that degree, lacking that immediate grasp of God in his own essence and only knowing the good as mediated through discourse and example and finite finite um, symbols of the good, that, that to that degree you're capable of, of uh, some degree of culpability, some degree of wickedness. Certainly not enough, however, to, quali to qualify you for eternal damnation, I, I would think. But uh, this is just a, a difference between epistemological and nosiological acquaintance. Um, it's it's like you know, you before you were uh, uh, a parent, say, did not have the direct acquaintance of your own child, right? Um, th th things become progressively impossible for you morally. You know, um, you, you might not be a perfect person. You might, might know that, uh, that in an epistemic sense, you might know that uh, you, you should not be indifferent to, to the unhappiness of a small child, to a child crying. And yet, um, you know, you're a less than perfect person. Uh, you put the thought out of your mind when someone's asking you to make a donation for a children's cancer ward, right? At some level, you know that what you're doing is wrong, but you temporize and then you justify it to yourself, or maybe you're just not that nice a person. Then one day, you have a direct, truly nosiological encounter with the pure, unmitigated goodness and moral demand made upon you by a child, maybe through learning to love your own child. At that point, uh, you've come nearer to the source, and it becomes much harder for you to be morally idiotic, to return to that term. That doesn't mean that your earlier failings were entirely devoid of culpability. There's still something there that needs to be fixed, needs to be purged, needs to be made right. But it does mean that in that that you were not yet capable of absolute culpability because there was also a dimension of spiritual, emotional, and moral ignorance at work, and also you know how you were raised, how you were taught to think, how you learned to think from society around you. So, you know, no, that's just a bad argument. Uh, there is such a thing as qualified culpability. What there isn't is absolute culpability for finite wills and minds. 
All right, a sixth problem Gomes raises is you're not taking seriously enough the willfulness of sin, writing, while no doubt we often do act ignorantly and misidentify the good, this can hardly account for the presence of sin all by itself. As experience attests, we willfully choose sin even when we know better. Hart's view seems to lodge defectibility in the intellect, but this surely does not commend itself to the sin-laden soul who understands that a weakness of will can lead one to choose what he or she truly knows to be wrong. Nor does this view take seriously biblical statements about wicked individuals who are said to hate God. On Hart's view, hating God is a form of misplaced love for him, and apostatizing from him is a form of seeking him. Hart might do well to bear in mind the words of the prophet who declares, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Isaiah oh, I love 20. that quotation. I love that quotation. <laughs> the funny thing is, I, I'll let you finish, but of course that's exactly the point I would make to go, Woe to you who call evil good and good evil. Uh, John, John 3.19 tells us that people love darkness rather than light. They do not love it as a misplaced or misunderstood affectation for the good. They love and embrace darkness because their wills are corrupt, as shown by their evil behavior. Even when faced with the light, especially when faced with it, in the moral purity of the Son of God himself, they choose darkness. Hart's mitigation of guilt is not easy to see in Jesus' words here. Aren't they? I mean, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The truth will set you free. If I'm lifted up so the world can really see me, I'll drag everyone to myself. Uh, yeah, no one doubts that a malformed will loves the darkness rather than light and must be freed from that darkness. But what does the Gospel of John have actually say? Uh, the light came into the world, right? The light entered the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. I mean, you know, it doesn't claim that uh, that that uh, those who rejected Christ did so because they fully understood who he was. It claims that they didn't understand who he was in part because they had already uh, rejected God in a different way. But, you know, the notion that, that, that now Gomes is going to claim that all of that tells us that absolute moral corruption, radical evil in the Kantian sense as possible, despite uh, what that would say about a God who created us and created us presumably as rational beings whose natural wills can have no possible fulfillment except in the goodness of God himself, uh, is, well, to be honest, it's, it's rather disturbing. I, I think he's kind of missing the point. Um, and again, uh, I, I deal with this in the fourth meditation. Uh, if he doesn't understand the classical intellectualist model of freedom, I, I hope that he comes to learn how it works because every other model of freedom is fundamentally incoherent and would make all free choice meaningless anyway. Uh, and again, I said, uh, Thomas Talbot's quite good on this as well. Um, but, uh, simply saying that, 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 that people in ignorance come to love evil, sure. I mean, you know, this not and this is not an absolute either or. It's not a again, he's taking the epistemological for the nosiological. It's quite possible to know that you're doing something wicked and love it. It's not possible for that to be the case, though, if there's not already something amiss, as if there's, you know, there's not already 
some illness, some some defect that 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 is not voluntary. Is you know, Schopenhauer said, uh, "We're free to do what we will. We're not free to will what we will." Now, what he meant was wish. I mean, you know, um, that 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 to some degree. Uh, there is, yeah, a prior, there's a prior volition in us that is not our choice. And we often yield to it, even if it's, uh, in many cases, when it's not good. But the notion that, that somehow you can, you can move from that obvious truth to this, this idea that, that, uh, that it's, it's possible simply to love the darkness rather than the light when again and again you have Christ making it pretty clear that it's not, that it's ignorance, that it's that it's separation from God created by, by the conditions of a world of darkness that does not understand God, it just seems to me, you know, a kind of arbitrary way of reading the, the, the language of Scripture there. I still don't, you know, to be honest, I don't know how you get around. I mean, you know, the, 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 the ultimate rejection of God in Christian thought, the ultimate rejection of the goodness of God in the radiance of the, the image of God in Christ, all the things he's talking about, uh, is crucifixion, is rejection. And Christ's own judgment upon, upon what happens there, what happened there is, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. That's that's it. He does not condemn anyone from the cross. So I, I'm not quite sure how 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 else one is to read the story. All right. The seventh problem Gomes raises is you're overdetermining the infinity and disproportionality of hell. Gomes writes. <laughs> Hart's arguments about the alleged disproportionality between guilt and punishment in the infernalist view do not commend themselves. In some places, Hart's language appears to impute a kind of infinity to hell that is surely not the case, though in other instances it is not so clear that this is his intention. Eternity for the finite creature is not a different species, duration-wise, from our present frame of reference. Creaturely eternity, as Hart in one place observed, and as I would have expected him to, it's not a kind of eternal now, as could be proper only for God, lacking succession and complete in itself, as it were. The eternal state is a continuation of time. It is not a different class of sequential existence from our present state in that respect. And it is finite. No matter how far into the future one goes, whether in bliss or eternal torment, the person will only have existed a finite amount of time. The suffering of hell is and always will be finite at the point that the agent is experiencing it. And regardless of how long hell lasts, what the agent has not yet experienced, he has not experienced. So to imply that his punishment somehow exists as a complete whole is to miss the mark. Aside from the question of duration, it is also important to realize that the degree of punishment in hell is not infinite either. Hart speaks of hell's infinite misery, which could mislead. Indeed, the biblical fact that there are degrees of punishment, e.g. Matthew 10.15, is sufficient in itself to show this to be so. You know, that might be the single stupidest argument anyone has made yet about this book. I mean, I've, I've come across some stupid arguments, but that one that one may take a, the, the laurels. I mean, I, I, I don't even know. I hope he was joking 
when he made that, because that is so cratinous. I mean, according first of all, just at the level of, of uh, sheer logic, that would mean that an infinite set isn't infinite, you know, because it's it's actually composed of, of discrete parts. But uh, yeah, obviously the word infinite is plurivocal. It can, it can be taken in different ways. We're not making a mathematical judgment here about a mathematical function. But the claim that eternal suffering exceeds any due verdict on a conditional state of moral and intellectual failure is obvious. But even if we were just talking mathematically and logically, he needs to go back and study set theory, because any endless set is quantitatively infinite. The fatuous observation that an infinite totality can be viewed always in terms of discrete parts that are themselves finite is about as profound as denying the existence of an elephant, because the whole elephant can't be found in a tusk or its tail or its ear or its trunk. Anything that accumulates eternally is infinite. That's simple logic. But so what? The issue, I mean, he knows what I'm saying, that, that to, combine a to, to condemn a rational nature to eternal unhappiness, eternal uh, durative or, or successive suffering uh, for the qualified and obviously finite uh, transgressions of which we're capable in this life is the very definition of just judgment triumphing over mercy. I, I God, that's a stupid argument. I don't know how he, he, he thought he was making a good point there. I, I don't know. Maybe you have to be raised Calvinist quite to to have your the, the threshold of moral discernment lowered quite that to that level but uh i i'm having a hard time restraining my my rhetoric here so let's just move on okay problem eight he raises involves the weakness of your biblical case writing hart's handling of the biblical text is the weakest part of his case and provides some low-hanging fruit for someone attempting to discredit it <laughs> But, but of really, course, that's, that, wait a minute. Obviously, that's not true. I mean, I'm sorry, but you know, uh, I, I that's simply a lie. Uh, he doesn't believe that. He's using that language simply because he, you know, is committed to a different reading of the New Testament. But this is old news. I, I, I know you want to go on, but let me just stop right there. Uh, I think he knows perfectly well, he has to, if he has is any kind of New Testament scholar, that, that, uh, that the case for eternal conscious torment is so weak that there's scarcely a credible New Testament scholar in the world who would claim that it's present in the, in the New Testament. Um, well, he, then, again, then again, if you're a New Testament scholar who still adheres to Calvinist theology, then you're not a good New Testament scholar anyway, because again, no competent New Testament scholar believes that Calvin or the late Augustine got Paul right. They, they recognize those readings as wildly anachronistic and as detached from Paul's actual concerns and as not rooted in Hellenistic Judaism or Second Temple Judaism, complete misunderstandings of his language. So, you know, um, uh, the quality of his scholarship, I think, it would have to be questionable just on those grounds. But anyway, yes, I, I have to interrupt because that's simply a, a nonsensical, well, not nonsensical, it's simply a dishonest claim. Well, just to finish out his critique about your handling of Scripture, says we really have already seen that Scripture is not determinative for Hart anyway, and his embrace of universal 
salvation has relatively little to do with the Bible once the accounts are settled. Hart contends that there are only three or four deeply ambiguous verses that seem and only seem to threaten eternal torments for the wicked. First, there is Matthew 25, 46, whose wording leaves considerable doubt regarding its true significance, unquote. And next we have, uh, quote, perhaps a couple of verses from Revelation, unquote, though when it comes to getting any meaning from whatever that book, um, quote, caveat lector, beyond that nothing is clear. What Hart does with the book of Revelation is especially striking. He attempts to evade passages that evidently teach eternal conscious punishment simply by evading the entire book. Hart regards it as a supremely foolish enterprise, quote, for anyone to attempt to extract so much as a single clear and unarguable doctrine regarding anything at all from the text. The comprehensibility of the text in Matthew fares little better when placed in Hart's hands. It, too, is nearly impenetrable, he tells us. Jesus' words here should not be received as anything other than an intentionally heterogeneous phantasmagory meant as much to disorient as to instruct, as shown by the wild. Wait, wait, wait. Could we, before you get on to Matthew, let's talk about Revelation and then move on to Matthew. There is not a, there is no passage in Revelation that, that seems to teach eternal conscious torment for sinners. I mean, that's just, this is old news. He's mistaking language that borrowed from the prophets about total destruction that may or may not, uh, be taken in the fully literal sense of total destruction, but even then, you know, the, the, these old issues about how dis, the, the, the language of destruction is used in the prophets and elsewhere, not actually meaning total destruction. Uh, but you see, this is the issue with Revelation. What I say is correct. It's an apocalyptic book, mostly concerned with intrahistorical events, uh, and he and he's not dealing with what I say about the book accurately, which is that uh, when you begin putting it in context and taking it apart, you are dealing with with a book that mostly has to do with the overthrow of the Roman Empire and the establishment of uh, a new historical reality in which you know, the, the, there will still be nations and people walking outside in the light of of the New Jerusalem, and so, and they're invited to come in. It's not it's not the sort of uh, eschatological uh, a book that it's often treated as being. It's not a series of articles about the, the last judgment and the final state of all things. That that imagery is part of what is most clear, most obviously a coded book about the future of Rome. It also seems to be the work of a Jewish Christian who believes that keeping the law was part of the... Well, I don't even go into that either. The thing is, the claim that, that, that I'm just dismissing the book because uh, to get around verses that teach eternal torment is simply false, I don't think that we understand the book well enough to draw any theology from it. I just don't. I think there are one or two claims in it that are, you know, interesting theologically in the sense that they're just moral or spiritual counsels. But otherwise, it's not that kind of book. But I also insist that there is not a single verse in it that legitimately uh, requires us to believe in the notion of eternal torment. Anyway, go on with Matthew, because I know he's going to make a hash of that, too. He says, um, 
Matthew fares little better when placed in Hart's hands. It too is nearly impenetrable, he tells us. Jesus' words here should not be received as anything other than an intentionally heterogeneous phantasmagory meant as meant as much to disorient as to instruct, as shown by the wild melange of images he employed. Yeah, again, uh, it's nice that he takes these phrases out of their context. He, he, he singularly notes, he fails to note that I give examples of what I mean, of the way in which the imagery that Christ uses is not consistent. Uh, and it's not consistent because he's not giving us propositions uh, about the final state of all things. Most of the prophetic material in the synoptics, frankly, uh, not just the little apocalypse, has to do with intrahistorical events. Some of the language he gives us is about the Gehenna, which is a place where corpses are, are disposed of. It's about a place of, uh, you know, death being killed in this world of dying, you know, soul and body, soul just meaning the principle of life. He uses images of ovens and fires destroying things. He uses images of being uh, excluded from a party at night and being outside in the dark uh, complaining about it. But then he also uses images about being imprisoned and punished for a finite term, for a specific time, and then once the, the debt has been discharged, being released. It is clear that these images do not all together come together to give us a particular picture of the sort that later took hold of the Christian imagination. He is using prophetic tropes, he's using second temple tropes, he's using parabolic tropes from, from the realities of his time, like debtor's prison. And they do not, they simply do not, when you actually know what they're saying, when, especially when you detach them from a certain history of translation, they simply do not give us the picture that, that someone like Gomes believes in, that he's talking about uh, damnation to a condition of, of uh, eternal torment. And I think he's perfectly aware of that, because you notice he's, he says, oh, you know, Uh, you know, he, he makes he 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 denounces me for for making these claims, but he doesn't offer any coherent reading of Christ's words that in any way refutes what I'm saying. Well, a ninth problem that Gomes well, raises. One other thing, on this. Though, before you no, okay. no, before you. Um, did you notice, however, that when he talked about? My arguments from Scripture. Did you notice what isn't present uh, in his review? No. Well, I mean, I, I I seem to remember that I provide something like twenty-seven pretty strong statements about universal salvation from the New Testament. Yes. Um, I don't simply say that. Um, you know, revelation is hard to make sense of, or Christ's imagery is uh, is allegorical and symbolic. I actually do make an argument from claims that are made in the text, and fairly striking claims at that. Uh, d does he bother in his critique to answer any of that? Well, um, in the tenth in the tenth critique he gives of you, it's 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 my favorite. Um, 
oh, well, characterization of your work. He says he says about that, that a certain number of these passages contain explicit qualifiers, sometimes omitted in the verses that Hart produces in his orgy of proof texts. Oh, I see. So, no, no, they so do, I think uh, that they yeah, those uh, those universalist texts were your orgy of proof texts. I see. Well, then, 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 then that's, uh, I, I mean, uh, of course, as a person who would not uh, use uh, a coarse polemic, I'm, I'm sure he didn't mean to use the word orgy there as a way of giving. And, and of course, uh, you know how fond people of his background are of proof texts. I'm, it's rather odd that uh, he should disdain the... the uh, my practice of inducing proof texts, but the funny thing is, no, there aren't. <laughs> there aren't qualifications. Anyway, go. Let's go with that. Let's go with problem ten, and then we can double back to problem nine. What else does he say about my orgy? Yeah, that I, I really enjoyed that part of his critique. Okay, problem ten. Gomes sees is an oversimplified appeal to the all passages. Says Gomes. Oh, yeah, also revised. The word all is very ambiguous. Right. Hart also provides, mostly without comment, a catena of citations that revolve around the word all, such as that God desires all to be saved, that justification of life came to all, that Jesus is the Savior of all men, that in Christ all are made alive, and so forth. However, a certain number of these passages contain explicit qualifiers, sometimes oh, omitted no, no, in the no, verses. Not, not, not all of the passage, just a certain number of them? Just a That's certain what he number. says. Okay, yeah. go on, go on. Okay. However, a certain number of these passages contain explicit qualifiers, sometimes omitted in the verses that Hart reproduces in his Orgy of Proof text, that show that the reference is not to all humankind without exception, but only to those who are in Christ, such as is the case of Romans 5, 18-19, which Hart cites, but then in which he omits verse 17, which applies justification in the life specifically to those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. And again, uh, Hart, wait, 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 wait. Oh, no, go on, finish. Okay. And again, Hart cites 1 Corinthians 15, 22, which says that in Christ shall all be made alive, but that, that this reference is only to believers, that this is an only reference to believers is clear from verse 23, which Hart omits, since it identifies the individuals re referenced in the previous verse as those who belong to Christ at his coming. Uh, well, the the former one is totally back. The, the, talking about Romans chapter five, that's totally backwards. I mean, only uh, I suppose if you come from the uh, Calvinist tradition, you assume that when it says those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, that means a limited number, and therefore you just take it as given that that's qualifying the following verses by limiting the all. Although how that works, because it wouldn't, it certainly wouldn't uh, apply uh, to the uh, to the parallelism of the all regarding Adam. But anyway, uh, but no, it's just the opposite. I don't, I don't see how how anyone can intelligently read that without seeing that's precisely the opposite that happens. Verse seventeen uh, says that those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, right? we made alive, uh -huh. basically, and then it tells us who they are. It tells us that, and it turns out that just as all were, 
know, uh, you know, just as you know, all of in in Adam's suffering. The problem is, it's a very condensed verse. But I mean, basically, as in Adam, all of uh, have have suffered this this estrangement from God. In Christ, all will be made alive. Uh, no, no, what's it in verse 18, 19? I'm trying to remember. Uh, it's not made alive, is it? I'm, I'm again falling asleep here. Uh, but anyway, yeah, no, he's got that completely backwards. I mean, the, the, a, any plain reading of the text suggests that it's verse 17 that's being given its full and expansive uh, acceptation by verse 18. Um, as for 1 Corinthians 15.22, it's just a, a complete misstatement. It doesn't just say that this reference is only to believers because uh, those who belong to Christ. It says first, it's talking about those, those who, who uh, uh, will be taken up, so to speak, taken into God. First, those who belong to Christ at his coming, meaning those who are still alive, then those who died, Christ, and then comes the end when God will be made all in all, when all things will be subjected to him. Uh, this was the, the you know, basically uh, the reading of St. Gregory of Nyssa. I mean, it seems to be clearly the case. But those who belong to Christ at his coming, is, in Paul's language, simply the first contingent, so to speak, of those who are, who are joined to the Father in Christ at the end of all things. Right, there's a procession which has a telos. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's just a very strange argument. Anyway, I, I'm kind of running out of time here, so I better let you uh, uh, go ahead. Okay, let's go to problem 11 then. Uh, now it is true that certain all texts do not add to such explicit qualifiers, and perhaps one might be excused for concluding in favor of universalism if those were the only texts with which one had to work, but they are not the only texts. Even if such texts would be amenable to a universalist construal in the abstract, we are right to reject this interpretation in light of Scripture's larger witness. Hart himself tacitly grants the propriety of this procedure in his rejection of annihilationism. He admits that the language of certain texts could, apart from other considerations, teach the annihilation of the wicked, yet he emphatically denies that these texts actually teach annihilationism, since that view is false on broader considerations. To heart, well, annihilationism. That, that, by, the way, by, by the way, that's a misstatement. I do not deny that they teach annihilationism. I do not. I am perfectly willing to accept that uh, some of them might might mean that. I don't believe there's a consistent claim about the. For instance, I'm not sure Paul is uh, is always at all times equally universalist in his thinking. But the, but this the, that goes to the issue of how you read scripture anyway. But anyway, putting that aside, uh, no, he's not calling on the larger larger scriptural witness. I am. I would I would say that it overwhelmingly supports the universalist reading. There are far more universalist claims than than he than he gives on, and the universalist claims, as Gregory of Nyssa uh, demonstrated with such virtuosity can make sense of the seemingly dissonant claims of annihilation. There are none of eternal hell. That's a nonsense category in being applied to the new sense. So question is universalism or annihilation of the wicked. Uh, Gregory and Macrina and Origen and Isaac of Nineveh and all 
I'm relying on 1 Corinthians chapter 3, of course, but nonetheless, they can show how you can, that those those verses can be coherently interpreted in light of the universalist uh, majority testimony of Scripture. Uh, the reverse has never been has has never been shown. That is, Augustine, the most brilliant, really, of of, of uh, obviously the most brilliant of the Latin fathers, when he has to explain away the universalist pericopes, uh, has to make incredibly bad arguments, suggesting that they don't say what they say. Gregory never has to do that. So I would say that uh, Gomes has that backwards. The overwhelming larger scriptural witness is fully on the side of, of, of universalism, not the reverse. Well, since we are kind of winding down in time here, I, I think you have responded to the basic uh, critiques that, that Gomes is raising. I just I would note that, that the debate over the admissibility of Christian universalism is still going strong. There's, a, there's another uh, video out where Michael McClyman, uh, in a recent interview, is asserting that Christian universalism actually has its roots in Carpocratian Gnostic universalism, okay. which is picked up by okay. Irenaeus. Okay. First of all, first of all, there is no such thing as Gnostic universalism. It's a non-category. There is one sentence about Carpocrates or Carpocratians in Irenaeus, which does not actually say what what Michael thinks it says, but Michael's knowledge of Greek and Latin, that part of Irenaeus exists in both, is I'm afraid deficient. He doesn't understand. What the, what the sentence actually says. I've written about this. Michael McClyman wrote a big book of something like 47,000 pages or whatever it is, arguing that, that universalism comes from Gnosticism and was unable to provide a single example of, uh, of whatever he... First of all, I mean, I don't even like the c- category Gnosticism. I think it's you, it has been rejected by by early church scholars for a good reason. But of these various schools that Irenaeus talks about, none of them is universalist, and had they been, they certainly would not have entered the mainstream from those sources. McClyman does not know what he's talking about, and it's rather sad that the book, because he could not find evidence for the preposterous claim he was making. The book goes on for thousands of pages, uh, compounding the embarrassment. Uh, it's just, I, I wish he would stop. I know Michael, I think he means well. I just don't think he, uh, he's just, he just, he doesn't have the languages, he doesn't have the scholarship, and he doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, it, it seems like the effort is to sort of slander Christian universalism by, by, by saying, you know, well, by it's, it's, it's carpocration. It, you know, yeah, then they were, yeah. they were, we, you know, they, they were they, scourged. Yes, we know. They were wicked. They were anti. They were antinomian. They were. They were horrible. What's funny is, is of course, that that as you obviously are already in the process of saying, I'm just interrupting because that's the way I'm behaving at the moment. You know, it's quite possible they were evil and they got something right. I mean, you know, it, it, uh, I don't think they were quite. I don't think Irenaeus's picture of the Carpocratians, by the way, uh, conforms to what little we do know about them from other sources. But that said, what Irenaeus is saying, he does not. The sentence in question does not actually claim that the Carpocratians believed in universal salvation. It's what it's saying is it uses the word. Omnes in the Latin that Michael quotes simply, 
in a construction that means that all those who are saved are saved in this way. It doesn't mean all will be saved. But it doesn't matter. I mean, again, as you say, it's a guilt by association, and it's it's a rather crude and deplorable way to argue. So the, the, the Capricrations thought that, that the way that people were saved was by experiencing everything that there was to experience. So you had to experience Supposedly. everything in, in order to be saved. And that was the at least the outline that we get above the, about them from Irenaeus. Right, if that's true, yeah. That, that, and, and, uh, but again, what the verse actually, what, what, what the phrase in Irenaeus says is not what Michael thinks it does. And even if it did, again, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty thin stuff for claiming that this is some kind of Gnostic heresy that corrupted the early church. Well, and, and Irenaeus gets his uh, the the doctrine of the recapitulation in Christ in Ephesians. That's his. That's where he draws oh, yeah. the universalist kind of implications. Well, as it happens, I mean, there there are perfectly good arguments that Irenaeus's own theology uh, would would culminate in the universalism, but that's a different argument for a different time. Um. Yeah, I know this. This this um, this is an argument that will never end. But um, and I think I'm finished talking about it. I agreed to this. I didn't actually realize the review was from 2019. To be honest, so I feel like <laughs> you know maybe I should have dealt with it at the time. But but at the end of the day, you know the 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 other side of this argument is always going to be bad. It's always going to be something like Michael McClyman trying to. Uh, impose uh, a sense that, or Michael, you know, telling us, "Well, it's consecration." You know, so it, it's always going to be something feeble like that because there really are no good arguments for the infernalism. They're just redundant. There's no way that one can possibly make it rationally and morally coherent. And in a sense, I think the time. All time, I mean, I really, honestly think the time. Uh, is rapidly approaching when, r- rather than debating these these rather pointless things about oh well, oh, what did Irenaeus mean or um, uh, how are we going to understand this this one verse from Scripture that can be taken this way or you know how are we going to add up the seemingly universalist and the seemingly non-universalist passages I think there has to come a point when when uh, a more robust case is made uh, for just simply the morally self-evident if if the the sort of tradition that that Gomes or McClyman or others is defending is the Christian position. Morally self-evidently, Christianity is false. I mean, there there is no reason to believe it. There would there could not be any reason to believe it. There are there is nothing that is of greater weight than the simple moral intelligence that should tell you that that torture the the eternal torture is an act of infinite malice and spite that cannot possibly be, be comprised in the will of a good, infinite, omnipotent God. And, and that, you know, it, it's it's enough, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway. What's, what's, well, what's ironic to me is, is that 
people that are, as you say, so sort of baked in this tradition seem entirely, entirely almost unable to even see the moral, the moral difficulty of it. It's yeah, like it's uh, invisible. Right. And that's why I believe one just has to keep stating it again and again and again and asking them, why do you believe what you why on what grounds? What rational grounds do you have for believing in the authority of Scripture of tradition? If you're going to tell me that at some level you you, you believe that at no point your moral intuitions and your moral intelligence are engaged, then your faith is meaningless. If they are engaged, then you have to heed them and listen to them. Um, but. It gets to the point where you just have to recognize that you are dealing with what I've called, again, just epistemological nihilism. It's not faith at the end of the day. It, 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 it's not interested uh, in finding a rationale. I'm, I'm sure, I mean, of course, we tend to think of faith as assent, but assent to what? To why? We assent to things for reasons. And if you ask a person who believes these things to trace his or her reasoning back to its earliest moments, what he or she is going to find is simple brute indoctrination. Never going to reach a point at which actually he or she was rationally convinced of this. Rather, the belief came first as pure irrational indoctrination that then had to be rationalized and always in a defective way one that was always encumbered by moral moral contradictions so vast that they cannot possibly be reconciled. Well, so it, I must go. Yes. Well, thank you very much for your time, and uh, I appreciate. Sorry, it. I wasn't at my most aphoristic and 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 mercurial today, as I say, these periods of. Uh, sleep deprivation, uh, insomnia are, are a chronic problem with me, so I hope I wasn't too incoherent. Okay. Well, you were forgiven. All right. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, Let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.